Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer, like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live. Bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Tara Parker Pope, editor of the Wellbeing Desk here at The Post. Joining me today is Christian Cooper, bird watcher, TV host, and author of the new book, Better Living Through Birding Notes from a Black Man in the Natural World. Christian, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me, Tara. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's so nice to meet you, and I'm excited about your book. Everybody loves birds, and I'm we have so much to talk about today. So you started your book with this really lovely scene in Hawaii, right? Can you tell me why you started there, and what you were trying to, you know, make us feel as we as we, you know, entered this world of birding with you? Well, for one thing, it was fresh in my memory because I had just come back from from shooting in Hawaii for the TV show Extraordinary Birder. Um, so, and it was just, it had actually, and I'm embarrassed to say that, I'm embarrassed to say this because um, I, I pride myself on a Vulcan-like emotional control, but what I had seen there had brought me to tears um, and really choked me up. We were on this bluff and these nanes, uh, uh gulls, uh, sorry, nanes uh, are, are geese. I'm being distracted by the cat meowing in the background. Um, but uh, uh, the nanes had uh, swooped down onto the uh, onto the island to welcome these new nanes that we had just released. And it was just so, there was something about everything. All of it came together to sort of give you a sense of place and time and just wonder. Um, so I thought that was a good way to start off the book because that's what I'm trying to do with the book is communicate a sense of, of place and time and wonder. And it's, it was surprising, I think, because a lot of people first heard about you around a really ugly incident, uh, in Central Park that you do write about later in the book where you talk about weaponized racism being used against you. Um, do you mind telling us a little bit about that day and sort of how that changed your life and the trajectory of your life you know sure can you give us a sense of how that fits into your life today sure um i mean it was certainly a turning point in my life simply because of all the stuff that came afterwards um uh, in terms of a lot of press attention and and sort of the way i like to say it is that if people are going to shove microphones and cameras in my face which they were doing i'm going to use it to say what i think needs to be said and what's sort of a positive of all of this is that um, those microphones and cameras have continued giving me a chance to express what I've been trying to express for a long time, what I've been fighting for for a long time before the incident and since, and, and, but given me a bigger platform to do it. Um, so that's how uh, the, the incident kind of, kind of altered the trajectory for me. Um, in terms of its importance, um, in the bigger picture, I think what was important is that it, it, it showed people something that I think a lot of, especially white people, 
we're not aware of, how deeply bias runs through our society, runs through American culture. And that became particularly important later that afternoon because that same day, uh, George Floyd was murdered when a police officer knelt on his neck for nine minutes and three other officers stood around and did nothing to stop him. Uh, so um, that was the fatal consequences of such bias. So it, it was sort of like a, a big eye opener, I think, for a lot of people. Not, I don't think for many black people, we've kind of known this for a while, but I think for a lot of non-black people, it, it was a revelation. So I, I think that's the importance of that incident in the bigger picture. So for viewers that may not be fully familiar with the story, just you know, briefly, you were bird watching uh, in Central Park. You encountered a woman who had her dog off the leash and you asked her to put the dog back on the leash. And the, right, because that particular part of the ramble, um, park regulations require dogs to be leashed at all times. So, you know, we, uh, we got into it. Um, because she did not want to leash her dog. Um, so we had a verbal confrontation. And as it escalated, she decided to inject race into the situation. She said, well, I'm going to call the police. And then she said, well, I'm going to tell them that there's an African-American man threatening my life. And so that was an attempt to intimidate, intimidate me into complying with her wish to stop uh, video recording her. Because at that point, I was using my... my uh, smartphone to, to record her actions and her unleashed dog. Um, and uh, at that point, I sort of had my own decision to make, you know, do I capitulate to this attempt to intim add intimidation? And I made the very conscious, conscious decision that to do so would be to be complicit in my own dehumanization. And I was not going to do that. And so I kept right on recording and until the dog was on the leash, which is what I had intended to do in the first place. And as soon as the dog was on the leash, I said, thank you and turned off my video recorder and went back to birding. So, um, you know, and then it went viral and, and the rest is, is well known or somewhat known or anyway. And that's, that's what kind of altered the traje trajectory of things. Um, yes, it was interesting to me in the book, you, there's a part of the book where you you talk about an incident in Central Park, and I think the reader's expectation is, oh, he's going to tell me about this day, when in fact, the incident you wanted to tell us about was completely different. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, the incident I wanted to tell you about was much more important. Well, I, I shouldn't say that, because obviously what happened uh, between me and that dog walker in the park was important in the national conversation. Sure. But in terms of the birding that I prioritize that time of year, this other incident was much more important. Um, a Kirtland's warbler, which is perhaps the rarest North American songbird, had taken a wrong turn on its way from its wintering ground in the Bahamas back to the little tiny piece of Michigan that all 6,000, and there's only 6,000 6, of them in the whole world, and they all breed in this like little tiny part of Michigan. And this bird on its way just took a, a wrong turn and ended up in Central Park for the first time in history. And in all those acres of Central Park and all those trees, somebody actually not only found the bird, but had the, the, the knowledge 
to recognize what they were seeing and get the word out to the rest of us birders. And we lost our minds because <laughs> it's 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 uh, uh, the best uh, um, uh, uh, metaphor I can come up with. And I use this in the book because it's what I call one of the seven pleasures of birding. It's, it's like as if you found a unicorn in your backyard. Uh, because it really is that rare, that unusual, that mythological in the mind of the birder is uh, the Kirtland's warbler. And here was one in our own backyard. And so uh, I start with that incident because it's a little bit of an entree into the world of birding and, and our weird obsessions and how much fun it is. It's fun hearing you talk about it. So later in the book, you talk about uh, the, the other incident in Central Park that I think people were expecting to read. But tell me, has it changed Central Park for you at all, this whole experience? Do you still go to Central Park often and, and you know, bird watch in Central Park? I do. And I always find it interesting. Um, you know, people would ask me, oh, um, you know, I'm sorry about your trauma. And I'm like, what trauma? She just doesn't have that dog walker doesn't have that kind of power over my life. Um, uh, could could not wield that much influence. And more importantly, when someone says, oh, do you still bird Central Park? I'm like, well, yeah, uh, <laughs> what happened there is one experience that has to be weighed against about 35 plus years of incredible birding experiences, some of them in that very same spot. So when I'm standing there, I'm not thinking about uh, that tussle I had with the dog walker that turned racist. I'm thinking about the morning warbler that was on a wood chip path for a week that we all got to see perfectly. And normally morning warblers, you know, you gotta work for hours to see one of them for like a minute. And this guy was just out there in the plain sight for everybody to see. So, you know, so many memories associated with Central Park with the ramble that have nothing to do with that. And those memories are imprinted in, in places all over the park. So that's that's what Central Park means to me. Have you seen the owl that everybody's so crazy about? The famous <laughs> owl, What's, I forget its name. Uh, the owl is called Flacco. Yeah. Um, the first thing a civilian, if I can use that term to refer to a non-birder, will ask someone who they see in the park with binoculars around their neck now is, have you seen Flacco? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I have seen Flacco. Uh, he's a beautiful bird. Um, but the thing about us birders is, we don't care that much about Flacco because we're more interested in the wild birds, the birds that are part of nature, that are part, are part of our ecology. So, you know, it's it's great that Flacco is free, um, but I'm more interested in Geraldine as she has been dubbed. And Geraldine is a very closely related species of owl, but she's native and she just took up residence in Central Park of her own accord. Um, and she's been there happily chowing down on rats um, for a good while and making us all happy that she's reducing the rat population because New York City has a lot of rats. Yes. Well, I am obviously a civilian, so I'm sorry to ask you about Flacco, but I'm happy to <laughs> learn about Geraldine. So um, you, you know so much about these birds. Tell me, can we go back in time? How did you get into this world? Like, was it a particular bird that brought you here or how did that all start? It was. Um, in, in birding terms, we call it your spark bird. It's the um, bird that drew you in to the hobby or, or the art, I think, as you called it at one point, or, or maybe that was the title card that called it the art of birding, which I thought kind of interesting. I never thought of it, thought of it in that respect. 
But the bird that draws you in is called your spark bird. And for me, it was the red-winged blackbird. And I was nine or 10 years old. I built a bird feeder in some woodshop class. And I kept seeing this bird, all black bird with red on the wings, the shoulder of the wing coming to the feeder. And I was like, I've discovered a new species of crow. And I was all excited. And then I found out, no, I hadn't. It's actually a red-winged blackbird. But I still love red-winged blackbirds. They're, they're one of my favorites. And uh, that was the bird that got me started. And then it sort of developed from there. Just I got sucked in. Nature was always big in our household when I was a kid because my dad was a science teacher. But for whatever reason, with me, it took the particular form of birds. So, and what happens next? Does your, do you get a pair of binoculars for Christmas? Like what, how does it go well, from there? Science teacher, you know, there were binoculars around. Um, and then what happened was not long after that, we took a cross country camping trip because both my parents were teachers. So they had the summer off. So um, they piled me, my sister, the family Cocker Spaniel, and the two of them, of course, and piled us into this uh, uh, Volkswagen Westphalia camper, you know, those things that are a little more than a van. And we went across country, uh, up across through Canada, down the West Coast and back through the States for uh, the length of a summer. And because there was not much room in the car with, two adults, two kids, and a Cocker Spaniel. Um, there wasn't room to bring many books, but one of the few books my dad did bring because he's a science teacher was a field guide to the birds of North America. So hours and hours driving in the car, you know, passing endless cornfields sometimes. Uh, so I would just flip through the book to amuse myself. And, you know, my brain was young and permeable at the time. And by the time we hit the West Coast, a bird that I'd never, none of us had ever seen before would flap by. And I'd go, oh, look, mom and dad, there goes a black-billed magpie. And they're like, how the hell does he know that? And it's because I remembered the book. So that was, that sort of cemented things. And after that, my dad just kind of nurtured that interest, would, would get up early in the mornings on Sundays and take me out to the uh, walks of the South Shore Audubon uh, Society. And uh, that really sort of got the ball rolling. Oh, that's such a sweet story, such a sweet memory. You talk also in the book about uh, growing up queer and being queer and, and the relationship with bird watching. Can you talk a little bit more about the sort of interplay between those two things, Did it how bird watching helped you with your own identity? Sure. Um, the birding was an escape valve for me because even before I was a birder, I knew I was queer, like from like the age of five, very early. Um, and somehow uh, I had metabolized sort of society's message at that time in the late 60s and through the 70s that that was something that one should never, ever talk about, um, that it was something one had to keep hidden. So I did. Um, and that was hugely painful. It was uh, the the metaphor I always I always used to describe it is that it was like being buried alive, because the real you is there trapped in this coffin, banging, screaming to get out, because you feel like you're suffocating. And meanwhile, everyone around you is walking over your grave, the green grass of your grave, having no idea that you're underneath there suffocating. Um, so it was a very painful experience. And one of the ways I escaped that was through birding, because one of the wonderful things about birding is that it forces you to focus outside of yourself. 
So whatever your woes are at any given moment, whatever is getting you down, you've got to, for at least a time, be paying attention to a greater world, a much larger universe around you and focusing very intently. If you want to see the birds, you got to be paying attention. So suddenly all your problems fall away and instead you're observing a world that's not wrapped up in all of that. That's got its own wonderful things going on that, that where you'll find all kinds of wonderful discoveries. And that was a huge help for me uh, as a young closeted kid uh, all the way through high school, in fact. Um, and then there's also just the fact, and I use this metaphor a little bit at the beginning of the book, where you know the naming of birds and, and how we put labels on them gets super confusing and it, it gets really complicated. And, and if you don't know what you're talking about, you're, you're gonna get all mixed up. And, and how do you navigate all those, all those names and words and labels for the birds? And that's actually something all of us, I don't care who you are, gay, straight, whatever, um, have to navigate when we're, especially when we're young. Okay, well, all these labels, which apply to me, which fit, which chafe, what does it mean to me? Um, and which do I just need to bust out of and redefine for myself? Uh, so that was also a, a, an, an interesting metaphor when I sat down and thought about it. Have you ever thought about writing a children's book and capturing some of this for kids? Good idea. <laughs> Is this the first time you've heard that idea? I listened to you talk about this and with such wonderment, and I feel like, oh my gosh, every child should hear you talk about birds. <laughs> um, well, I do do a lot of work uh, with students in the New York City public schools, have for, what, 20 plus years or something like that. Um, just trying to get them, you know, out of the sea of concrete and out of staring at a bunch of pixels on their television or on their phone or on their, you know, uh, various devices and, and video games and instead engaging with the natural world um, because it is so incredibly healing. And because I think these kids need that, it changes their perspective. So I've been doing that quite a bit. As for working, writing a children's book, Maybe I might I might tackle one about hummingbirds because I find hummingbirds so wonderful and it would be a little bit of a tribute to my mom because my mom when she found out that not all hummingbirds are named hummingbird that there are in fact so many different kinds of hummingbirds that they had to start coming up with new names like uh, um, sapphire and uh, 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 Jacobin and other just all these weird names for all kinds of hummingbirds and she was fascinated by that and they're so gorgeous and so varied. So that might be a fun thing to explore in a children's book. That is a fun topic. You know, speaking of things that kids love, let's talk about comics, because this is another world that you have lived in. Tell me about comics in your life and how important they are. Um, I've always, my whole family is genetically predisposed towards science fiction and, and fantasy and horror. Um, so comics are certainly fit into that genre. And uh, when I was a kid, comics comics was how I, I knew I was gay at the age of five, because the things that turned me on were the hot, muscly men in the comics. Um, and then comics is also, uh, was part of my escape, you know, was being able to project yourself into that fantasy world of having superpowers. And in particular, um, one comic book really kind of summed up the, the gay experience, which was uh, the X-Men. Very popular comic book, um, thriving to this day. Um, but the metaphor of X-Men was that um, people are born as mutants. And 
Um, some of them look very different because of that, but some of them look just like ordinary people. And then all of a sudden in adolescence, they discover something about themselves that makes them different from everybody else. They have these abilities that are strange and different from everybody else. And that was, you know, I don't, I don't think it was intended originally as a metaphor for the gay experience, but it certainly turned into one because so many gay people, you know, around adolescence or, or then I was an early one, but um, they discover, oh, wait, I'm a little bit different than everybody else around me. What does that mean? How do I navigate this? Does this make me a villain? Does this put me at odds with society? What do I do with that? And that's what the X-Men wrestled with all the time. So that was a great comic book. Love it to this day. Um, and so, yeah, I, 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 when I finally got to work for Marvel, that was kind of a dream can come true because I had been so steeped in, in that world for so long. So in your work for Marvel, you also created, help me out here, the first gay Star Trek character, is that right? That's correct. The first, I, I always qualify it by saying the first gay human Star Trek character, because, you know, Star Trek has always had all kinds of weird species and who knows how they reproduced, but there had never been a gay human. And so I got to create that character in the comics. Now I have to put it, that's always with an asterisk after it because the comics are not considered canon in, in the Star Trek universe. You know, things that happen in the comics are not necessarily recognized in the, the official movies and television and all that. Um, but I did get to create it and it was tremendously meaningful because Star Trek for so long had been groundbreaking. Star Trek for so long had projected a utopian future for humanity. Um, and to have no gay people in that projected future was a glaring omission. So to put it in and put it in a way that I hope, I, I, I tried to make sort of very natural and very sort of like not, not a big deal, even though the story kind of wrestles one character has to wrestle with it because she's from a species that's completely different and doesn't get it. Um, but for everybody else, they're kind of like, okay, yeah, you're dating, you're dating so-and-so. That's great. Um, so that was fun to do. Who was and the character? Character uh, was named Yoshi Mishima, which was kind of a nod to the Japanese gay writer, Yukio Mishima. I think, I think it's Yukio Mishima. Um, uh, anyway, um, uh, but it was an odd to that to that famous Japanese uh, gay writer, um, and uh, he had adventures alongside everybody else. So that was fun. That that is fun. Uh, now speaking of fun, you have another really exciting project going on—a television show with National Geographic. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's kind of a dream come true. Um, I got this phone call from a Nat Geo executive and she said, oh yeah, we want to do a birding show because we've never really done one before. And um, would you like to go around the country to all these different birding spots and see these great and incredible birds and, and tell people about them? And then I'm like, hmm, do I want to do that? Hmm, yes. So yeah, that, it's just been tremendous fun. Um, and particularly because as a New Yorker, I am that stereotypical New Yorker who doesn't drive. And once you get outside of someplace like New York City, if you wanna to go to the, the great burning spots, a lot of times you gotta drive there. So you know, short of hitching a ride or taking an Uber, it was difficult for me, but now I had a crew that was gonna take me there. And so I'm like, yes, let's go find these birds. So we went to each episode, sorry, go ahead. No, please continue, so sorry. 
I was going to say each episode takes us to a different location and we not only look at the interesting birds you can find there, um, but we look at the intersection of birds and people and how, where that's successful and where there are problems. And we look at the people who are working so hard to save the birds and save the habitats, whether they're um, a degree biologists or just devoted amateurs. These are the, the extraordinary birders of the title. These people we met in the we meet in the course of the show, so you know we go to we do an episode in New York. We went to Puerto Rico. We go to Hawaii, um, and a most important episode to me is we go to Alabama, because there we do the intersection of birds and civil rights history and also family history. Because even though my family is Northerners for several generations, um, like all African Americans. Our roots are ultimately in the South, and my dad's family came from Alabama, and I had never been. So, um, you know, all of that together just made it tremendously meaningful for me to be down there. And it just made it great to do the show in all these different locations. So tell me the name of the show and how our viewers can find it. So the name of the show is Extraordinary Birder, and it premieres on Saturday, June 17th um, at 10 p.m., Eastern. I don't know about the other time zones. Um, on Nat Geo Wild, that's uh, the cable channel, Nat Geo Wild. And then subsequent to that, on June 21st, it starts streaming on Disney Plus. Exciting. Okay, we have an audience question, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, this is from Raymond Kaufman of Indiana. Raymond asks, How and when did you come to view birding from a broader perspective? Uh, compared to just simply studying, enjoying nature. So where did you get these sort of, the bigger, the bigger ideas around birding for you? Well, I don't know if I would say simply enjoying and studying nature. <laughs> I don't think there's anything simple about that. I, I think when you start enjoying and studying nature, it opens you up to a lot that maybe you hadn't thought about before. And that's, that's how my broader perspective came in. You know, you start noticing parallels between what the birds do and what we do. You start to understand that, okay, yeah, we're human beings, but you know what? We're animals just like the other animals on this planet. And we're plugged into ecosystems just like they are. And we are in fact an ecosystem to a whole bunch of organisms that live on us and in us. And in fact, if we didn't have these organisms on us and in us, we might not be able to survive. And you start to, as you you learn more and more about birds and through birds, the uh, more about ecology and more about biology, the more you start to understand yourself and ourselves as human beings. So I, I don't think it's simply enjoying and simply mm -hmm. studying. I think it's it's not, there's nothing simple about it. Or maybe it is simple, but it's wonderful and it's eye-opening. So I don't want to run out of time before we uh, get down to just the basics of, I love birds, I want to start bird watching. how do I start? Can you tell our viewers who are now completely interested in this after hearing you speak, what's the first step? What equipment do I need? Like, how do I do this? How do I start? The first step is to just pay attention, open your eyes and your ears to what is around you. And you don't even have to step outside. You can do it from your window and just look out your window and see what birds are in your, in your area, through your window, on your fire escape, in your backyard. You can put out feeders. That'll bring them even closer. 
Um, the tool that is most commonly used by birders is a pair of binoculars. Um, that can be perceived as a barrier to entry because it can be a pricey piece of equipment. Um, you know, a decent pair of binoculars can run you can run you in like the two hundred dollar range, but that should never ever be perceived as a barrier to birding. You can go birding with just your own eyes and ears. And in fact, in our Puerto Rico episode of Extraordinary Birder, we meet a Puerto Rican birder who is blind, and so he relies entirely on what he hears. The, he's sorting the sounds to figure out what birds are around and and they're using him in this national forest to because they take recordings 24 7 and then he goes through the recordings and sorts them to let them know oh okay well in the last 24 hours this 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 and this species have been in this area so that's incredible um you don't have to be sighted you don't have to be uh you can be in a wheelchair and bird from your own home there are also plenty of reserves that now are focusing on accessibility so there is no reason why you should not be birding and i always say the birds belong to no one but they are free and available to all of us no matter what your disability or ability status, no matter your sexual orientation or gender identity, your race, your religion, your ethnicity, your gender, it just does not matter. It's all there for all of us. And as part of the birding experience, documenting it, keeping a notebook, keeping track of what you've seen and the date, I mean, is that part of the joy of the experience? It really depends on the person. Um, uh, for decades, I kept little journals where I would record what I would see. And it was sort of my snapshot of the day so that years back, I could look back and say, oh yeah, I remember that day and seeing this bird or that bird or this incredible number of birds. Um, I stopped doing that about two or three years ago because I'm trying to switch myself over to an, uh, an online electronic system um, that's run by the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology called eBird. And the reason why eBird is so wonderful is not just because it lets you organize your sightings digitally, but because all that data then goes to the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and they can crunch it and use it to figure out what's happening with birds in a very specific locality or broad trends with birds in a larger area. And that scientific knowledge they can use for better conservation. So I want to be contributing to that. I want to be, want to be part of that community science and, and giving my sightings to the Cornell Lab, Lab of Ornithology through eBird. That's the name of the app, is eBird. Um, and, and so that they can use it and, and do better. And we can do better through them. This has been such a fascinating conversation. I've enjoyed it so much. Um, but unfortunately, we're out of time, so we're going to have to leave it there. Um, Christian Cooper, thank you so much for sharing your story, your book, and for joining us today on Washington Post Live. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.